Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear now your God's word to you today. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by God, by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So when's the reading of our God's word? Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Father, this is your word, and it is a lamp to our feet. It's our guide through a dark world. It's wisdom, and it's truth, and it's ours. It's sweeter than honey, and yet it is sharper than swords. It brings healing, it brings truth, and it calls us to obey. Your word grants us understanding of your grace and your peace and your love. And that's why we draw near to you in your word today. And so we ask that you speak to us through it. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We've, we've reached a major turning point in 2 Thessalonians, and that might sound funny after just two sermons, but it's a short book. Um, in chapter 1, we saw Paul ad- again addressing a discouraged people. Coming to faith had been costly for the Thessalonians. Uh, their conversions to Christianity had been met with Uh, Not praise or celebration, but with ridicule and ostracism and persecution. They truly experience those words of Jesus, what it means to count the cost of following him. And really, that's what we saw as we studied 1 Thessalonians last summer. Paul was writing to a hurting people in hopes of pointing them to Jesus until the last day when Jesus would return and set all things right. And and the point of all that was to help them not lose faith, but to stand strong and and to persevere, to keep going. And as we come to 2 Thessalonians, it's now been about a year, and things aren't any better. In fact, in some ways, they're worse. And the Thessalonians are tired. They're discouraged. And they're struggling. But to make matters worse, someone, or some ones, maybe some people, have been telling them that Jesus has already returned. Can you imagine? Paul had told them that when Jesus comes, he will set all things right. That's what we're waiting for. And now they're hearing that he already has returned. And they're wondering, is this as good as it gets? Is this what we were waiting for. 
how discouraged they must have been. And then Paul comes along with those comforting words. You didn't miss it. Things have to get a lot worse first. And you think to yourself, that's meant to be encouraging? But it is. Because Paul's telling them that they haven't missed it. That Jesus is still coming back. And when he does, his victory will be absolute. And so the question that naturally follows is, what do we do while we wait? How do we live? Where do we put our focus and how do we spend our time between Jesus' ascension into heaven and his return to take us home? And, and my, I wonder, what do you think? How would you respond? What kind of response would you imagine to be fitting as a follow-up to what we have seen so far in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2? And I think there are other questions that they would be asking as well. Questions like, Paul, what if I'm too weak? What if I don't make it? What if I fall away? What if I'm just too sinful? Because obedience is hard, and what if mine isn't enough? When I'm weak, Paul, what hope is there for me? And these are the questions that the Apostle Paul and, and Timothy and, and Sylvanus or Silas with him are turning their attention new, to now to address in the remainder of the book. The second half of chapter 2 and, the, and all of chapter 3. And Paul is going to address the different ways that we respond in obedience, how we are to live while we await the return of Jesus. One of the ways that we respond is in our obedience to God toward the world. Toward the world. We're to have hearts of compassion that are shown in evangelism. And that's what we're going to look at next time after I get back from vacation in the beginning of chapter 3. After that, we're going to see another form of obedience, that which is shown toward each other within the church. How do we love each other? How do we have hearts of sacrifice and service and not selfishness towards each other? And that's what we're going to see in the final passage at the end of chapter 3 in a few weeks. But today, before Paul gets to either of those, how we treat the world and how we treat each other inside the church, he first wants to talk about how we show our obedience in our obedience to God. Part of what it means is standing firm in our faith while we await the return of Jesus. But as he talks about this, Paul has, needs to address what hope we have of obeying at all. Because obedience is hard. Our sin and our pride and our selfishness is great. And it is hard to fight against. If we're honest, sometimes the, the call to obey God just seems too overwhelming, even hopeless. 
And so Paul turns his focus to, to our response of obedience. And as he does, he wants to root us firmly in God's love and in his work of grace in us. And so my, my hope this morning as we just open up this, this beautiful, small little section of chapter 2 is to see this. Rooted in Jesus' love and grace. Rooted, grounded, established in his love and grace, we are called to stand firm and walk in obedient devotion to our God while we await Christ's glorious return. That's what we're going to see today in these few beautiful verses. We've, we've talked about it before, uh, but there's a temptation we all face, and it's, it's to interpret our reality and even our relationship with God by our circumstances. And in the best of times... That can be bad. Because even in the best of times, there's pain in the present life. And there's, there's warnings that things are going to get worse. And, and that's a hard pill to swallow. That's in the best of times. But what about when you're tired and you're beat down? Times like that, your circumstances and the pain can be downright unbearable. And when you are overwhelmed, it can be hard to see the love of God. And so that's where our passage starts and, and quite frankly, ends. Our passage is framed with the love of God. Look at verse 13. Brothers, beloved of God. Beloved means to be loved by. Brothers, you are loved by God. And if that wasn't clear, look at verse 16. God who loved us. Everything he has to say in our passage is, is framed rooted in, grounded in, the fact that God loves us. We can't skip over these words. There is nothing more important than God's love for you. And you will, if you haven't already, you will at some point question God's love. When you're struggling with sin, when you're being attacked, when you're beat down, exhausted, and ready to give up, you will feel unlovable and you will be tempted to believe you are unlovable. And so when you hear from God's word, which is incapable of erring, that you are loved by God, you need to simply bask in that good news and take comfort in it. You need to let it sink in. And then Paul goes on and he tells us how we know we're loved. Verse 13, he chose us. I'm astounded by how many take offense at this doctrine that God chose me that I didn't choose him. Because I can't think of a more comforting doctrine. Because I've seen inside my heart. And if I look for comfort there, I will never find it. If I want to believe I'm lovable before I'm loved, I'll wait forever. If I want to trust that I will make the right decision and I don't need God, that trust would be misplaced. But a God 
who loves us while we were yet enemies. A God who in love chose those who would reject him if left to themselves. Go back this afternoon. and, and, and We have our call to worship and our declaration of pardon printed in our bulletins. Go read those passages again. A God who, who chose us while we were yet enemies and reconciled us while we were yet enemies. A God who in love chose us, chose us who, if left to ourselves, would reject him. A God who enters into my sinful, self-absorbed, messed up reality and says, I love you and I'm calling you out of darkness and into the light. I'm adopting you into my family and I am setting the unbreakable love of a father on you and nothing you can do will break it. That's something I can get behind. That gives me comfort. You are loved not because you're good enough, but because God chose to love you. If you did anything to gain it, you could do something to lose it. But if you did nothing to gain his love, then there's nothing you can do to lose it. That's comfort. That's the comfort of God's love that that we find in the gospel. We're saved by grace through faith, not not by law through obedience. That's what he says in verse 3. You were saved through, through belief in the truth. And that means that when the enemy tells you that you're not good enough, look him in the eye the best you can and just say to him, you're right. I'm not good enough. I'm saved by grace, which is simply to say I'm saved by love. It is so easy when we talk about salvation simply to think about what we're saved out of, out of sin and hell and judgment, and to be sure we are. What we're seeing here reminds us that that our greatest problem is, is not the world out there, but the sin inside. God knows it, and yet he sent his son into the world to bear my sin and to bear my shame. And he loves me, and he called me out of that guilt and out of that shame. That's an important part to talk about when we talk about salvation. But Paul's description of salvation doesn't end there. Look at verse 14. It focuses on what we're saved into. Not just out of, but into. Through the gospel, we have been called to, the, to glory. Specifically, it says the glory of Jesus Christ, to join him in his glory. We have been made heirs of heaven, where we will see Jesus Christ face to face. What awaits us is beyond the, the realm of, of the reaches of our imaginations. What do you look forward to most about heaven? No more pain? No more misery? No more suffering? Those are glorious thoughts. But what I think I look forward to most is freedom from sin. 
from selfishness, pride. And that's what I have in Jesus Christ. That's my hope. And it's yours as well. Did you notice that little phrase in verse 13, by the Spirit? Before he says that you were saved by belief in the truth, he says that this was by the Spirit. In other words, even the belief, even the faith that we have is a gift of our loving God. Before we can believe, we must have to be given a changed heart and, and new birth. And he gives them to us. This is how much our God loves us. And so it's fitting that we would be characterized by thankfulness, which is where he began. We ought always to give thanks to God for our salvation, for the salvation of others. Understanding God's love always leads to gratitude. I want to skip verse 15 for a few minutes. And look at the last two verses, verses 16 and 17. They they form what we call a benediction, which is just a blessing that God gives us by his love, by his grace. It's not something that's earned. And it ends with those words about being established in every good work and word. He says now, in other words, moving forward. Here's here's what we need to understand now. And he reiterates God's love and his comfort in verse 16. And so he says, moving forward starts with, it's rooted in, it's grounded in, it's made possible by what God has done for us. But he's not done. Look at verse 17. May the God who has done so now comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The first thing God does is comfort his people. In the midst of hardship and pain and persecution and adversity, God is there with his comfort. That's not a promise to remove all adversity from you, but to meet you in it. The comfort is to strengthen, it's to love, it's to come alongside. Isn't that what Psalm 23 says? Yea, walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say, God will rescue me out of it. It says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. In it. That's what God does for those he loves. But it's not all he does. He also establishes them in every good work and word. Verse 17. In other words, God cares about how you live. God wants you to do what is good and say what is true. But notice that Paul's prayer is that Jesus would establish you in every good work and word. It's, it's Jesus who gives you the strength to obey. What Paul's saying here is, is no different than what he says to the Ephesians, that, that we walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us. This is the great encouragement we, we need when we feel weak or beat down. This is what he means in verse 16 by hope through grace. Having started the journey by grace through faith, That's also how we're going to finish the journey, by grace through faith. If we have any hope of walking in this world in a way that is fitting for those who have been shown the kind of love that's being described here, we need to know where our strength comes from. 
But we also want to put some flesh on what that obedience to which we are called looks like, which is what we find in verse 15, which is where I want to spend the remainder of our time this morning. It starts with, so then, which is another word, way of saying uh, because. Because God has loved you. Because heaven is our home and our destination. Because we have God's spirit and we belong to him and not the world. Because of all these things, so then... Here are our marching orders in this life while we await Jesus' return. Stand firm. That's what he tells us. Stand firm. But you stand firm against something. It, it, to, to tell someone to stand firm is, is a call to not be conquered, to not be overcome. It's a call to perse perseverance in the face of adversity or antagonism. And so the question is, okay, Paul, what are we to stand strong against? If we were to search the whole of Scripture, there are many, many things we could identify. But I think there are three distinct temptations that we find in our passage that we are called to stand firm against. And so I want to focus on, on the ones that are in our passage. The first temptation is to follow false teaching. He's calling us to stand firm against false teaching. When he says, hold to the traditions that they were taught in verse 15, he's not talking about the traditions of man, but the teachings of the apostles. And what he's saying is teaching is important. Teaching shapes you. And the most important time to receive teaching is before you need it. The last thing you want is your surgeon studying surgery during the operation. This is what they teach you in the military, in law enforcement. And when things get hard, the only way to keep soldiers from running in terror is training, 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 drilling, drilling, drilling. And then, as they go into battle, the commander looks them in the eye and says, remember your training. Trust your training. And that's what Paul's telling us here. So when, you, when times get hard, you're going to be tempted to panic. You're going to be tempted to follow those who, who tell you what you want to hear. And it's then more than ever that you need to hold fast to what you have been taught. The way to be strong when things get hard is to immerse yourself in Scripture. So that its thoughts become your thoughts and transform you. And so the first temptation we need to stand against is false teaching. There's a second temptation that we need to stand strong again, and it's this. It's to join the world and simply live for pleasure. When Paul says that he wants us to be established for every good work and word, he knows that there's a temptation that faces all of us. And it's to grow tired and wonder if it's all worth it at all. If following God doesn't make my life easier, what's the point? Why don't I just at least enjoy myself? If you can't beat them, join them. But you have been called 
out of that way of thinking. You have been called out of the world and its empty promises and sinful lies. And so a life of gratitude is always a life of obedience. I love that that's how the Heidelberg Catechism describes it, our obedience to God. What does gratitude look like? A life of gratitude always leads to obedience, true worship, obedience to parents and those in authority, kindness, not harming others, faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in other relationships, generosity, not theft, truth, not lies, contentment with what God has given us. In other words, it always leads us to love God and to love others as ourselves. These are the appropriate responses of a grateful heart. And so the Bible here in verse 17 calls us to stand firm against the temptation to join the world and live for our own pleasure. There's a third temptation that we find in our passage, and it's to despair. In hard times, in the midst of pain, suffering, and heartache, the temptation, and it is a powerful one, is to just give up. The voice of despair, it comes and it whispers in your ear, and when it does, it says things like, why bother? Why try? Why don't I just give up anything to make this pain go away? Standing firm means believing God when he says, I love you. I'm preparing a home for you. And this, what you're going through right now is not your eternal reality. I am. So hold on because I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And so our passage calls us to stand firm against the temptation to despair while you await your Savior. All of these truths that we see in our passage this morning are reiterated in the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine are reminders of what Jesus has done for you. He gave his life and he shed his blood to save you. Do you remember what he said in John 15? Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for a friend. Every week, as we see in the bread and the wine that Jesus laid down his life for us, our God is saying, I love you. But the, the bread and wine are also reminders to us that we have been called to take up our cross and suffer with Jesus. These aren't just pictures of what Jesus suffered in this world, but what we will suffer as well. And God knows. And God cares. And he comforts and he strengthens us in the midst of our trials. We use bread and wine as pictures of Christ's body and blood because his body is not on this earth. He rose from the grave and he ascended into his glory 
And if you belong to him, that glory awaits you. And so when you take the bread and the wine, you are confessing that your hope is in Jesus, not in this world. You're asking God for his strength so that you might stand firm against false teaching, against temptation, and against despair until that day when he returns to take you home. So I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come up that we might share this meal together. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you have chosen us out of the world. And we ask that you would help us to stand firm against false teaching, against the temptation to join the world, and against the temptation to despair. Strengthen us by your spirit. Help us to see with the eyes of faith, we pray. Amen. We're going to respond to God's word with a hymn, but we're going to change things up a little bit on how we ask the ushers to come up for the offering after this song. And so the ushers, we're going to start having you come up during the last verse of the hymns so that we don't have to call up and be distracting during uh, the prayer. So ushers, keep that in mind. Let us stand and respond to God's word with hymn number 479, Jesus, I am resting, resting.
Let us commit our gifts to God in prayer. Our gracious God, we, we thank you. We stand in awe of your love. Help us to stand firm against the temptations of this world, including the temptation of selfishness. Give us generous hearts that mirror your generosity to us. Receive these gifts now for what they are, an act of worship and gratitude, we pray through Christ our Savior. Amen.